You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. This week, we continue the story of David Williams. If you recall, last week in part one, David Williams was an Apache pilot who was one of the first pilots shot down in the beginning of the Iraq War. Uh, he was also captured and was a prisoner of war for 23 days in Iraq. And before we get to finishing up his story, I want to remind everybody, please make sure if you're a fan of this podcast uh, that you go to iTunes and you rate and review the podcast. That's so important to us. As always, we appreciate everybody listening and passing on the word of the podcast to others, but the ratings and reviews really help us out and help get the word out there to people who may not know about the podcast. So we'd appreciate if you take the time to rate and review on iTunes or however you're listening, rate and review the podcast so others can find out about it. Now, back to David Williams. Uh, if you last recall from last week's episode, uh, David was shot down and he and his co-pilot Ronald Young were scurrying through the desert of Iraq to try to avoid being captured. And we left off with him uh, about to be found by the Iraqis, and it's a harrowing tale. The second half of this story, as you hear David's days in captivity and what was done to him and how things went and, of course, his dramatic rescue. So with that, let's get to part two of David Williams on the Hazard Ground podcast. Now, at this point, it's quiet. All the aircraft were gone. The Iraqis had stopped shooting in the air and the air raid sirens had stopped and, 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 and so forth. And we came up to what I refer to as like a 90-degree corner to another road that actually ran perpendicular towards the palm trees, and that's the road I wanted to take. As we were making that 90-degree turn, Ron and I, of course, are not talking to each other. If we are, we're whispering. And I can hear Iraqis loud and clear talking. What's your level of fear at this point? What's that? What's your level of fear at this point? I'm terrified because the... You have different different types of... of, uh, uh, how, how do we call it, uh, interrogations, Right. okay? And the most dangerous interrogation is the combat interrogation. Usually, in a combat interrogation is when you are first captured. When you're first captured, the enemy, you have to remember, the enemy themselves are very emotional and upset. They're under duress you possibly could compromise their position. So it may be easier just to execute you and move on mm-hmm. with your mission. As I sit there, Ron and I lay down on this incline uh, with our feet in the water, and I'm on my belly looking over my left shoulder, and I see three Iraqis, and they're pointing right at us. Now, everything that could have gone wrong went wrong that night. The moon at that time, the 17th of March, was a full moon. This was the 23rd of March. The moon was now at what we refer to as zenith, which means it's right over our heads. It was bright enough that it was, 
we were casting our own shadows. So it was very easy for the Iraqis to see us. One of the Iraqis takes his AK, he aims our direction, and he fires. And fortunately, it didn't hit us. Now, I'm not exactly sure what his intent was by doing that. Maybe he wanted to scare us. Maybe he wasn't sure it was us or he wanted us to stand up or whatever. But nevertheless, we stayed still. The only weapon I have on me is a pistol, which is buried underneath my uh, ballistic protection. So it's inaccessible to me. And I only had one magazine. So I'm not going to get in a firefight with these guys who have AK-47s. My thought process was, let me get the volume of this radio down, and hopefully they will just continue on and bypass us and keep walking. As they got closer, it was evident that we were laying there and they started yelling out in Arabic to other Iraqis. So all these Iraqis start conversing to where we're at. Two of the Iraqis came down the slope, and as one of them came down, I slowly put my left hand up to plead with this guy, and I took a rifle buck stroke. He took the end of it, and he hit me right on the side of my left ear. And, and, I mean, it rocked me. I, I People call it blackout. I call it grayout because, I mean, I my ears were ringing. And as I kind of lifted my head out of the dirt, I looked at Ron, and Ron was literally face down in the dirt. And I thought they had shot him. What they had done is they hit him square on the back of the head with the rifle and and, and knocked him unconscious momentarily okay and as i sat there i i started to lift my head up and they're screaming at us in arabic and one of them takes a knife after they bound our hands behind our back and he takes a knife out to my throat and i plead with him and i said please please don't do that please don't do that and he lifts me up and he walks me uh up the hill with a knife under my neck now, you ask me, Mark, what am I thinking? Once again, I go right back to the most important people in my life, and those are my two kids. I don't, I, I, I just, I can't let their thought go. Uh, uh, seeing my infant uh, daughter and my two-year-old son, that was my last memories that I had. And they took us to a house where... They congregated, and, of course, <clears throat> they had uh, brought out the children. I, I don't know for uh, exact, but I assume of the people that I had just engaged, the children of the two people that I had just engaged. And they were screaming at me, yelling at me, trying to make me feel guilty for what I had just done, which... Ultimately, later on in captivity, they actually tried to put me in court and charge me for the murder of the two the two Iraqis. Wow. Um, let me ask you real quick. So they come upon you, and they're screaming in Arabic. I mean, you can feel the anger. You can feel the hatred they have for you 
uh, as they're screaming. You can't understand a word they're saying. When you start pleading with them, did you get a sense that they understood your pleas? Or did you feel like they were falling on deaf ears and you felt hopeless? I think I think that uh, when I was pleading and they felt, uh, you have to remember, they had tied our hands behind our back. So anytime that they would swat at us with a stick or whatever, I would like jerk away as to be as non-threatening as I possibly could. Right. Ron is very fortunate to be alive because, as I said, he's so tall. When he stood up, the, one of the Iraqis took his AK and literally pointed at Ron's face and fired and shot around. And, I mean, Ron had to have the muzzle blast and some of the stuff go right past his gear. How it didn't hit him is beyond me. And, I mean, that in itself scared the crap out of me. But uh, for Ron, I can't imagine what he was thinking, how close that was, that he almost lost his life. David, how do you, how do you and, collect yourself in this moment? Like, I mean, between thinking about your family, worrying about dying, general fear, uh, and not knowing what's next, how do you collect yourself enough to be able to just get up and walk or try to do what they're saying? I mean, you know, like that seems like an awful lot going on in a short amount of time. It is. It is. And the way it was explained to me uh, by one of these doctors is inside the brain you have this, uh, the subcortical portion of the brain, this reptilian portion, if you will. And it's your fight or flight mechanism. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's a part of the brain that's responsible for your heart rate, uh, for your sex drive, the desire to eat and sustain life. And at this point, that's where you're at. You're, you're saying, I'm going to do anything I can to survive. I've got to survive. So as they walk us back to the house, uh, I'm non-threatening. I don't look at them. I look down at the ground. The same goes with Ron. They go through all of our possessions. And once they felt that uh, we were not going to try anything with them, they had notified vehicles uh, from the city of Kabata. Most of these guys that we were fighting against, Mark, they were in civilian clothes. They were not military clothes. So we didn't know, you know, what rank they were right. or, or anything like that. Or even what their They're intent could be. Clothes. Yeah, I mean, so did you make any attempts to try and communicate with Ron as he's standing right next to you? This, Or you guys just didn't even look at each other, didn't talk to each other? No, we didn't. Ron and I, we, 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 what they did is they put us in a room and we faced each other Uh but we weren't trying to 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 say anything except ask. I don't understand what he's saying or what he's trying to tell me. There was a point where, in my flight suit, in my pocket, I had uh, what we call a blood chip, and it's it's a it's a piece of paper that has multiple languages written on it, mm-hmm. and it says. If you take this person, and, and it has Arabic writing on it, and it says, if you take this pilot 
So friendly forces, you will be rewarded monetarily with money. And I, I, I kid you not, when they took that piece of paper out, they looked at it, they just balled it up and threw it on the floor. Not a care in the world. Wow. And so they, once, once they went through all of our personal possessions, uh, they took our watches, our wedding bands, everything that we had on us, with the exception of our flight suit and our boots. They put us in the back of a, a truck, uh, like, a, uh, like a pickup truck, and we had uh, several guys get in the back of the truck with rifles. And at this point, I assume they were taking us to some type of military facility. Are you blindfolded? Not at, No, not okay. at this point. No, not at this point. <clears throat> and we, as we made our way down these roads, I mean, they were driving. Uh, I don't know where they learned to drive, but <laughs> it was carelessly. But they were in a hurry, and I remember making this left turn, and I was on the left side of the truck, and Ron was sitting on the right side against the cab facing me. And I looked over my left shoulder, and there must have been 50 people out in the street waiting for us. Oh, my God. And I knew at that point that this was going to be the angry mob, uh, if you will. And I leaned forward in the truck as far as I could, and I remember as I was leaning forward, I, look, I looked up at Ron, and some people had grabbed the top of Ron's flight suit on his shoulders, and I remember as they yanked him over the side of the truck, I saw his two boots go up as he hit back first on the pavement. Oh. And it actually took uniformed guards to break up the crowd, to get them to stop kicking us and hitting us, to get us inside the building to where they could start the first series of interrogations. Okay, so to this point, physically, how are you? I know mentally you're just like, it's a whirlwind, but physically, how are you? You shot in the foot still, um, you know, you haven't eaten, you haven't slept, kind of give me physically where you are. Uh, my, my left side of my uh, skull was in a lot of pain, mm-hmm. and uh, my foot was also in a lot of pain. I didn't know the extent of the damage that I had received uh, because the top of the boot, all I could see was that it had been blown up open, so I didn't know if I still had my toes or, or, or what. But what they had done is now it became like a soft cell interrogation, and they actually sat us down, and I, I, to this day, uh, Al Jazeera was at every single interrogation that I was at. Really? And I guarantee, even the ones where I was blindfolded and handcuffed, they were there. Wow. And I saw on, uh, if you go, National Geographic did a documentary called Inside the Iraq War. And if you watch at the 15 to 20 minute point, you actually see the very first interrogation of Ron and I. Really? And I never knew that existed. 
and I don't to uh, to this day I still don't know how they got it, but you could see where I'm limping. You could see the different the 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 questions that they're asking us, and you could see how I have this one guy. He's got his arm around me while he's brandishing this AK-47 like I'm his trophy, you know. Um, and they go through uh, a very generic interrogation of, of what is your unit, what were you flying, what was your mission, etc. Now, fortunately, I had gone in 1996, I went through a course called the Sear Level C course. Right. Out at Fort Bragg. And severe is survive, escape, uh, what's the R and the E? Survive, evade? Resist. Resist and escape. escape. That's what it is. Thank you. Yeah. And and, uh, it was started by a man named Colonel uh, Nick Rowe, James Rowe, who was a special forces guy who spent five years in captivity in Vietnam. And prior to that, there was no formal training. And uh, if you watch that video, you can see the difference in how I answer the question versus how Ron answers the questions. Right? And what I was trying to do is when a question was directed towards Ron and Ron would answer it, then they redirected the question to me, and I wouldn't answer in the same manner. In fact, I, I would resist and stonewall, is what uh, they quoted. And um, at this point, now they're trying to figure out who the senior of the two are, uh, so that they can put more of an emphasis on that person. The funniest thing in the world is to describe to the the enemy what a warrant officer is. <laughs> okay. Uh, Not many militaries they, have them for those listening. I mean, warrant officers are, are, are a very American type of thing. It, it, they are, and they're very they're a unique breed, and especially Army warrant officers. Uh, were a lot different than the Navy and the Marine uh, warrants. And they kept asking me, they said, you are a captain. I said, no, I'm a warrant officer. Because they were looking at my ID card, and they were looking for some type of reference that said captain on it. And I said, no, I'm a warrant officer. And they said, what is a warrant officer? And you know, I wasn't going to go in this 20-minute dissertation about how the rank structure works, <laughs> okay? I wanted, just, I wanted to remove myself from this uh, series of questioning, and I said, okay, yes, I'm a captain. And they said, yes, very good, you're a captain. And so from that point on, throughout the rest of my captivity, I was the SRO or the senior ranking officer okay. known as the captain. I right, think so, that was probably the simplest thing to do to get them off my back. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, obviously, you know, you, you, you at some point in time, and again, I'm probably speaking at a turn here, but while, you, while you're in captivity, you just want to get from point A to point B with as least resistance as possible because it makes your life a little bit easier. So they, after the initial interrogation, what happens next? Where do they transport you? Where do you go? 
Well, the the saw cell lasts until the following morning, uh, which was the 24th, and we had some guys come down. Now, I'm still not blindfolded, and we had some guys come down from, I assume, Baghdad, and these guys were all in military uniform. They had these uh, maroon berets. They were very well equipped. In fact, one of them had an AK-47 that was completely chrome. Even the magazine was chrome. I mean, wow. it was a beautiful rifle. Okay? And he came down, and their attitude towards us was, or their demeanor was a lot. They were more aggravated and more irritated with us than what we had already been exposed to. And I remember one guy getting in my face screaming at me, and he was showing the, his palm of his hands at me, uh, saying that the blood of his people, you know, or uh, somehow I caused it. Right. And at the time, I was, uh, I was wearing a name tag on my flight suit, which was the state of Texas. Okay, and we call that target by association. I had a camera there, and a guy was, he was speaking broken English, and he looked at me, and he looked at my flag, and he says, you are from Texas. I know this. And I looked at him, and the camera is right next to him, and he says, Bush is from Texas. So I was very hesitant on how I responded. I didn't want, I wasn't going to incriminate myself and say, well, you're right, he's not a good guy. I, the first thing that came out of my mouth was, I don't know him personally, he seems like a good guy to me, which ultimately ended up with a slap to the face. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> after he did that, he ripped my flight tag off. He put um, uh, some type of blindfold and these handcuffs, uh, after they took my hands behind my back, the handcuffs were like a flat bar and a U, and they would use like an Allen key, and that's how they cinched down. It wasn't a regular key like uh, U.S. law enforcement. And at this point, they separate Ron and I. I don't, I don't hear Ron anymore. They take me out, and they put me in the back of a truck, and they sit me, uh, I assume, like an SU-type vehicle, SUV, and I have two guys. I have a guy on each side of me, and they rest the head, uh, my head, on the back of the front seat while the guys in the back they put their arms on my back to hold me down to basically keep me from sitting upright. Okay. And the entire ride to Baghdad, the guy in the passenger seat would roll the window down and he would yell out to the crowd that he had the American, uh, meaning the American, right. and he would elbow me square right on the top of the head. Oof. And, of course, the crowd would applaud, right? and that would incite him more. 
so it made for a very long uh, ride to Baghdad. Um, I mean, I, once we arrived in Baghdad, uh, they brought me to a prison cell, and uh, they took me into the cell. They took all my flight suit, all my boots. They actually wrapped my foot up, which was uh, which was for the most part okay. Uh, it could have been a lot worse. I could have broken several metatorsal bones. Who knows? But they wrapped it up and they treated it for burns and powder burns, etc. So they did supply some medical care for us. Let me ask and you. Once, let me once ask, they shut the door, that was it. Okay, let me I ask you real quick. I'm sorry. I, I don't mean to cut you Go off. I, I just kind of want to get a sense of... You know, you're going through all this. How, how is your mind reacting? I mean, obviously, you keep going back to thoughts of your daughter and your son, your family. Um, but how are you doing otherwise mentally? Are you just kind of going with the flow? Uh, no, honestly, Mark, I was terrified. I, I was I was very scared because I knew that they had reopened the case on uh, Michael Spike, Commander Michael Spiker. Mm-hmm who had not been seen or heard from since the first Gulf War. And here it is. It's been over a decade. So <clears throat> I, I'm, I'm very uneasy and nervous because I don't know what their intentions are. I don't know if they want to use this for propaganda purposes. I don't know. Uh, knowing how Saddam treated his prisoners historically, uh, made me very uneasy. Were you and, thinking and of this, Were you thinking of all the ways that you could possibly die? <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. Yeah, I mean, I just it uh, seems like a natural thought, like saying, uh, you know, you, you might have just made made your peace that this was going to be the end. It was just a question of how. And in certain cases, I feel like that would be the worst part because everywhere they took you, now it's like, okay, now how are they going to try to get rid of me? I well. I, it took me four days of sitting in that cell, and we didn't have electricity, we didn't have a bed, we, it, it, I, I slept on the floor in these pajamas, and it was, there was no bars or windows or anything like that. The door was a solid steel door that they had a little opening, uh, like a little four-inch opening that they would slide open and put a flashlight down on top of you. And I suspect for four days or so, I, I thought about, man, uh, you know, if the Americans didn't kill us by all the ordnance that they were dropping around us, um, the Iraqis surely were. Uh, they... <clears throat> There was a, they did a lot of things to uh, the, the physical punishment I could withstand. Okay, I expected that from them. I expected them to be angry. But what got the best of me was the psychological aspect. And I'll go into one of my one of my hardest uh, interrogations I did is they had taken me. They came in. They always had positive control. They blindfolded and handcuffed me. They took me out, and they took me. I don't know whether it was to another cell or to another room, but I remember them walking, and when I got 
into the room, I could hear a lot of Iraqis talking. And I could hear somebody breathing, literally standing right next to me. And then all of a sudden, I feel a, a rope go around my neck, and they pull it taut, and they pull it to where I'm literally on my toes, if you will. Mm-hmm. The interrogator starts to speak to me, and he's, and, and this is not Arabic at all. I don't recognize uh, his accent, where he was from, but he, this was not a generic interrogation. This was, I want to know what it is in the aircraft that I see when radar searching. I want to know how to bring it down. It was very specific. Now, unfortunately, up until this point, Every interrogation I had, they kept track of. They would, they had the questions that they asked, and then they would write the responses down to those questions to see if they could catch me in a lie right. down the road in the future. And I was go- I was trying to fall back on all the formal training that I had done, and I said, "Sir," uh, and I was being very polite. I said, sir, honestly, I'm just an instructor pilot, which is plausible. I said, I don't know. I don't. All I do is I teach people how to shoot. And then I could hear him reading in a book, and he started reading it verbatim out of this book. And what it was is he had gone in my aircraft and pulled out the operator's manual. And in Chapter 4 of the operator's manual, it talks about what I see when radar searching. Really? It talks about what I see when there's a missile coming at me. And he had busted me in all these lies up until this point. Wow. And and I I as I sat there and I pleaded with him, I said, Sir, I, I told you everything that I possibly could. I don't know, I'm just an instructor pilot. I feel the barrel of the AK go against my head, and now I start pleading with him. I said, "Don't do, please, sir, don't do that." He pulls the charging handle, and he dry fires the AK against my head. Oh God! And he says something in Arabic again, and once again he pulls the charging handle back. After they, I assume he put another magazine in, and he dry fires again. And at that time, I just broke down crying because I didn't know if that was it. third time to charm. Oh, God. All right? I, you know, I don't care how tough you think you are. When, you're, when you know historically how, how a dictator, Saddam, treated his people, to be in that hangman's, hangman's noose and have that rifle against your temple... And he's doing mock executions. I don't know how else you would want me to respond. I, I, and, I, I am like just my jaws on the floor. Like I, I don't even know how to how to respond. I don't even know what to ask you next. It's just how do you, how do you recover from that? I I I, I said, please, sir. I, please don't kill me. Please, I, I've been honest with you. He says. 
you are very lucky this evening. The next inter or the next time or he was referring to the next time that we met, I won't be so lucky. And he and they stopped the interrogation and they took me back to my cell and later on uh that night we had two bombs hit close next to the building that we were in. And uh, unfortunately, or fortunately for us, the building wasn't structurally sound. So they took us out of there. And then from that point on, they moved us every single day up until the day that I was rescued. And these were bombs dropped by Americans, right? I mean, that's, that's what you're referring yes. to. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so now you start bouncing around from place to place. Do you have any idea each day where you are and where you're going? No, no idea because they always had positive control. And, and, and uh, let me remind you that I have five other prisoners that I have to be responsible for. If you remember Jessica Lynch's unit. Yes, the, the 507 maintenance, maintenance company. company. Yeah. They were being held in the same facility I was in, and I was always referred to as the captain. And if I did if I did something wrong, they would have to pay for it. So uh, <laughs> could you I get any more? What's that? <laughs> could 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 you put? Could they pile any more on top of you at this point in time? I I, <laughs> I had so much on my shoulders. I, I will tell you this, Mark. It was so I love those guys so much that when we were finally rescued and we were taken back to the states and launched to, and the uh, the t- repeat repatriation team, which consisted of, of of all these doctors and intelligence gatherers and everything, I was uh, so controlling of them that. I had a full bird colonel approach me and say, Dave, you have to let them heal on their own. You have to let us treat them. That's how clo- that I would not let go or let them out of my sight. And, and, and uh, you know, to this day, they're still part of my family. I, I live here in El Paso. Shoshana lives not even five miles away. Joe Hudson uh, also lives in El Paso, um, and, and I keep in touch with every single one of the other prisoners that I was with, in addition to the Marines who rescued us. Uh, I still am in touch with them, whether it's via Facebook or phone call or, or whatever it is. So, so I mean, I can only imagine the bonds of captivity and what that does for you. I mean, obviously, you, you've explained some of it, but... Uh... You know, knowing that you, you, the only person next to you is is your family at that point in time. Yes, your thoughts are with your real family, you know, thousands of miles away, but that is your immediate family at that point in time. And and being with them and sticking with them is the only thing that you have that can provide you any comfort. So I, I, I obviously I can't relate, but I, I can empathize with what you're saying as far as you know the the captivity and what it does for you. So take me to the rescue. How does it happen? It, it's um. It's a very interesting story. Uh, Geographically, Ron and I didn't know where we were at. We were in the city of Samara, and 
from what I understand, is the city of Samara was off limits to any military action. And that was something that was agreed to between Iraq and the Allied forces because of this historical uh, significance. Um, <clears throat> we came into contact with some very humane, very intelligent Sunnis. Uh, three Sunnis that I'll refer to, one of them was a major, and the other two were captains. And one of the captains had learned English because his mother had taught English in a school. And uh, they would sit a chair, even though, they, even though you know, we weren't free to move about, we were still confined they would interact with us. And, you know, I don't care what people... People can say, I'd love to be on a desert island by myself uh, and, and be without human interaction. But if you say that, you're lying to yourself. Sure. Uh, because we were desperate to be able to just talk to somebody, you know, and especially it, it's, it's very easy for Stockholm Syndrome to set in. Right. Very, very easy when you're confined and the only interaction and the only person that you have to talk to is the enemy. And they control every aspect of your life, whether they bring you water or, or, or whatever it is. And so here, these three guys, one of them we refer to, the Iraqi, as Raymond, because he was a image of the character off the show Everybody Loves Raymond. <laughs> I mean, he looked just like him. And and so they would leave the door open. They put us all in one room, which also was a godsend because now I was able to see the wounds of the others. You gotta remember, Shoshana had been shot through both her ankles. Edgar Hernandez had been shot in his right bicep, and Joe Hudson had been shot three times in his lower back. Oof. And we're going into the third week, 20-some days, and their bandages are starting to look the uh, a reddish brown. It had been a while because they had been moving us. And I pleaded with the captain who spoke English. I said, please, they need medical care. And he, he he agreed. He said, "Okay, we we go get new stuff." Well, they went to a doctor to go get all these supplies, and the doctor became very suspicious of of why he needed all this stuff. He knew that the U.S. Marines were literally outside the city limits of Samara. Along, uh, just on the other side of a bridge. And what the, these Marines were doing is they were blocking Iraqi forces coming down from Tikrit, okay? And let me just, David, pause you just to give everybody some geographical, you know, kind of uh, ideas. So Karbala, where you took your plane down in that area, we saw 60 miles southwest of Baghdad. You drive up to right. Baghdad, and then in the process, while they're transporting from day to day, Samara is probably... 
about 75 to 80 miles north to northwest of Baghdad, straight up that main highway road I talked about earlier. So, I mean, you've, you've traveled quite a distance at this point in time. Yes, exactly. And, and, and this was all unbeknown to us. And, of course, you know, every day after the first prison, they moved us every single day to a different prison. And so the Iraqi doctor who became suspicious went out to the Marines. He says, I don't know why, but I had somebody come and ask uh, for all these supplies. And the only thing I could think of is that there are injured either soldiers or personnel being held here in the city of Samara. Now, this unit, this Marine unit is a small unit. It's a recon unit. It's not a large force. All it was was one battalion commander, and his name was Stacy Clarity. And he, he had two platoons that he was overseeing. Uh, one, one platoon leader was Lieutenant Eubank, and the other was Captain Gordon Miller. And, of course, within that platoon, he had an Iraqi translator. And the Iraqi translator had spoke to this doctor and, and said, take this GPS to where you think these people are at. This is how you mark a present position, and you bring that GPS back to us. Okay. The doctor also stated to Colonel Clary that uh, Chemical Ali was in the city of, of Samara. And Colonel Clary, he's now General Clarity, he's still in the Marines, told me that he wasn't interested. Even though Chemical Ali was a high-value target, he wasn't interested, and in, he had a mission he had to contend with. All right? Mm-hmm. So he goes, the doctor goes back to where he takes these medical supplies and realizes that the people that are being held there are the American prisoners. He goes back to the Marines and said, the American prisoners are being held in this house at this place, and this is the GPS position. And Colonel Clarity said, I need two volunteers right away, and both Lieutenant Eubank and Captain Gordon Miller said, we volunteered to take our platoons. They only took two vehicles. Their guys loaded up, and they went down into the city limits within the city of Samara, and they came straight to the house of where we were at and literally kicked the door down. Did and you, there we were. Did you have any idea that, like, were you just sitting there and all of a sudden a door kicks open and you see Marines, or, or how did you view it from I where you had, were? We had no idea. We were sitting in the room. We heard some uh, military vehicle, like diesel vehicles, that we knew that were tracked, or not tracked, but we knew they were not normal vehicles. And we heard all this yelling and commotion and then we heard this pow, pow, and finally the door kicks open. And I mean to tell you, Mark, these Marines were every bit of the stilly-eyed killer you could ask them to be. 
They had their M16s. They came in screaming at everybody to get down, get down, get down. And at one point, the Iraqis, and Ron jokes about it all the time, that the Iraqis got down quicker than we did. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And uh, we get down, and the Marines, they literally, they get on top of us, and they're putting their knees, and they're trying to control us and hold us down because they don't know who friend and foe is. Okay. They, okay, what they have, to, their mission is they have to get everybody out of the building once they get everybody to a secure spot, then they can determine who is friend and who is foe. When you were hearing English voices, were you like, oh, my God, thank God? You have no idea. I, the emotions that to, to how, how, how do you control your emotions when you see this Marine staring at you? And you look at him and you tell him and you say, I'm Chief Warrant Officer Dave Williams, U.S. Army. And he's, you can tell he's been fighting for days. He hasn't showered and the dirt. And you, uh, how do you control your emotions at that point? That now you have another opportunity to see your children one more time. Wow. David, I, I just mean, got, I just got chills. Incredible. I, I can't I can't even imagine. I mean, God bless you. Just honestly, like I, I don't know what else to say. Um, okay, so they come through, they kick the door down, they load you up in vehicles, and you guys get out of there. I mean, is that essentially how it happens? I, it was that fast. Here's the thing about uh, Colonel Clarity. All right, he didn't ask for permission from higher up. He didn't. He didn't ask his commander. He didn't. He 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 took the, his own initiative, and had he not come and got us that day, Mark, I'm not confident I'd be here to even do this with you. Wow, God, thank God for that. I mean, there are so many people in the military who are afraid to take a piss without asking. Thank God he just had the wherewithal to come and get you. Like honestly, for all you guys, like it's just, a, and you know that from being, you know, obviously a career guy. There are a lot of leaders who just don't like to do things without getting a blessing from a from a uh, from a superior officer. I mean, fortunately for me, I'm not one of them. But um, you know, I, I just, it's got to be just the, the most surreal moment to to watch those guys come through the door, pick you up, put you in these vehicles, and take you back to an American base. Like, is that where you went right back to an American base? Right. They put us in the back of 46s, CH-46 uh, Marine helicopters, and they flew us to an undisclosed location. And then from that point, they took us to back to Kuwait, where a team was waiting for us. And, I mean, that's how fast the news was spreading. When we were on the C-130 in route to Kuwait, they had two reporters. They had one from the Miami Herald, and they had one from the Washington Post, and they were on the plane. And that's how the information got out that we had been rescued. And once we arrived in Kuwait, the repatriation team, which they had rescued Jessica Lynch one week prior to that, mm -hmm. so that now they're pre prepared to handle the media and how to to handle us. And the first and for, foremost is 
to do the medical treatment to make sure that we're okay. All right, and then at that point, uh, I I don't remember his name, but in the middle of the night, uh, they moved us to a a Kuwait a private Kuwaiti hospital, and they sectioned off in an entire ward just for us. And I'll never forget this: the Prime Minister of Kuwait, when I got up in the morning to go get something to eat. In the room, our, this break room where we were limited to go, was this huge vase of these flowers. And there was like rose petals all over the table and everything. And there was a card from the Kuwaiti Prime Minister thanking us for our service wow. and our contributions to, to, uh, to the Iraqi as well as the Kuwaiti people. And and uh, I will never forget that uh, that he took the time to to do that for us. And once they reoperated on Shoshana, Joe, and Edgar, and they checked me out, um, they flew us back to the alarm school where we started our intelligence debriefings to identify high-profile targets, et cetera. My thought process at the time was, uh, I'm still, it's, it's surreal, but even though I'm being very protective of the 507, which even to this day, I'm still somewhat protective of them, uh, I want to see my kids. I want to see my, uh, at the time, uh, my wife, I wanted to see her and I wanted to see my kids. And, um... You know, we spent a week at Lawn School. They flew us back to the States. Uh, the president and the first lady, along with Condoleezza Rice, George uh, Sr. and Barbara Bush uh, were there. They greeted us when we arrived, when we came back. And, you know, I, I got off the plane, I hugged my wife, and I wanted to see my babies. That's it. That's all I wanted to do. And once I was with my kids again, and I knew that I was never, I wasn't going to let them go again. It's not beautiful. or not like that, anyways. All right, God, God bless you. God bless them. That's beautiful. I mean, just to... and uh, <sighs> you know, after that, Mark, I, I I wanted to get back in the cockpit, get back to flying and teaching, so that others would not have to go through. What I went through, and to this day, I still give lectures, whether it's at universities or, or whatever. Uh, I still train these guys. Uh, like, you know, yesterday I flew with the, the cab commander, uh, who's a full bird. And uh, this afternoon, right before I left work, he came in to see me, to shake my hand, and, and just to tell me thank you for... Being with these, because now I have a completely different generation of pilots that we're training. Right. I mean, these guys are young compared to me. And uh, I, I don't want to let that go. And I will continue until the day I die, ensuring that these guys have all the tools that they need when they go to combat to fight with. 
David, what stays with you the most about the incident, about the whole ordeal? Never, ever let your spirit be broken. Um, It's kind of cliche, Mark, and it's it's kind of corny. But I was given this nickname called the Gray Wolf uh, or the Wolf. And what stays with me is if you were to go, <clears throat> if you were to go to a zoo and you see all the animals in their in their habitats, they really they're they're not in their natural habitat or they're not acting as if they would. But when you go see the wolf, the wolf is pacing, and you see it in his eyes, and the wolf spirit is never broken. And going through captivity like that, going through something like that, you can never let the enemy get to you. And ultimately, uh, towards the end, I didn't. None of us did. And, and, and I impress that upon these soldiers. If they ever find themselves in that situation, that we as Americans are always going to do everything we can to come get you. And, and you know, I read in news articles uh, quite often that organizations up in D.C. are still finding bodies in, 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 in Korea or whether uh, in different parts of Asia. We will not rest until we bring everybody home. And that itself... I mean, we're the only country in the world that does that. Yeah. So I, I go back to saying, never let your spirit be broken. Don't live in fear and always keep moving forward. Keep leaning forward in the saddle. David, you're an inspiration. I mean, honestly, courage comes in many different forms. And I, I don't even know that there's anything I could even say that would, you know, make people understand you know, what you went through. I just know that people listening um, are, are definitively touched by your story and, and, you know, how courageous you were and your heroism and, you know, just hearing the tale about, you know, holding on to your kids again. Any parent who's listening to this obviously knows that and can relate to that. But, uh, I mean, just what you did for those five other people from the 507th Maintenance Company, I know that they, they thank you endlessly for, for being their leader and, you know, Ron Young, who is your co-pilot, uh, I, I know you still have a relationship with him, and uh, you guys have strong bonds, and I, I just can't thank you enough for sharing your story. I am literally just floored by everything you've told me, and, and uh, I, I wish you nothing but the best, and I, and I hope that you continue to share this story with as many people as possible, because it's worth telling. Uh, it's, it's been my pleasure, Mark, and, and anytime you have my cell phone number, reach out to me. You want to talk? I'll be here. And, uh, and I'll listen. Well, thank you again, David Williams. Again, keep, uh, keep teaching our young soldiers and young pilots uh, how, to, how to survive and, and, and you know, fight and win wars for America. But uh, be, beyond that, just thank you so much for your time. Okay. No problem, Mark. You have a good evening. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell, and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. 
Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.